Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. It's uh, January 9th, 2022. Um, Looking forward to tonight's show. We have as our guest here coming up in just a little bit, Kyle Kondik of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball out of the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Uh, Kyle's been on the show several times. But tonight, instead of just having a free will and discussion about all kind of different um, congressional and Senate races across the country, um, we're going to focus in on his book that has just been released in the last few days of 2021, um, The Long Red Thread. And it is concerning um, from 1964 to 2020 how House cycles for so long, Democrats kept control of the U.S. House and um, and still did for a lot of that portion um, between 1964 and I guess 1994, but how it progressed to where Republicans could take control for, um, you know, good chunks of the period after. I won't spoil the thing since Kyle's done all this great research and writing. Uh, we're going to let him expound on his theories here in a little bit or when he calls in. Um, I'm here solo right now because so, Tim Shiflett was at a campaign event that was planned. Um, Catherine, I'm not sure um, where she's at right now, but if she calls in, we'll get her on. But then um, there were some things we had planned to talk about. And the first was, uh, since we were on the show last week, uh, former Senate Majority Leader, and I guess Minority Leader at times, uh, Harry Reid, U.S. Senator from Nevada, passed away. And um, he was, you know, not serving in the Senate at the time, but had still had quite a legacy. Um, just a very unique figure. If I'm not mistaken, he was of the Mormon faith. He had been a former prosecutor. He was a boxer, and um, yet he was this staunch Democrat, um, even in the more progressive era of Democratic politics. And he had kind of a manner about him. I never met him, but just on TV and what I gather, that was um, – more even keel, um, and it kind of belies this, you know, in the past he had been a boxer, and then he was somebody that was so effective that kind of got what he wanted um, for the Democratic Party in the Senate. And so, um, though he won't be in, in office, he'll be sorely missed. Even after he was out of office, I think he still had a ton of influence. And in the state of Nevada to this day, they talk about the Harry Reid machine, and in some tough uh, democratic cycles and where in which you know Democrats lost in a lot of other places uh, Democrats would still win races in Nevada in those tough years um, and they called you know they credited that to the Harry Reid machine his funeral was yesterday they had a service and just sadly and shockingly in a lot of ways the funeral was protested um, while if someone was you know in office and then passed away and, um, you know, was, was maybe controversial when they were in office. 
to protest a funeral is a pretty low event um, because, you know, you got family, friends that are mourning and remember that person's life. But it really, you know, kind of shocked and surprised me that someone who had been out of office for several cycles now, that someone took the time um, to protest the funeral. I mean, it may not have been, you know, thousands of people by any means, but even just a small, you know, smattering of folks, you know, on the sidewalk um, across from the service is just too many. I mean, I just really um, don't understand why an individual like Harry Reid was eliciting that kind of response. Um, you know, th there are people that are, I would think would be much more of a lightning rod, and it still would not be um, excusable if their funeral was protested. But it really um, kind of surprised me it was Harry Reid. And then in a state like Nevada, which, I mean, Every state seemingly is divided, but in some ways, I guess um, Nevada is a state that you don't think is quite as, um, you know, I won't say it's partisan. It's, it's people kind of are busy doing other things, and they may not be as um, attuned to politics seemingly to where they're, they're protesting um, funerals. I know I've heard in the past that it's a very tough state to poll because people are new to the state. Um, it, it has a lot of residents move in. It's grown very fast. And so um, I was just kind of shocked at those developments. And I want to welcome into the show uh, Catherine Smith. Hey, Catherine, how you doing? Greetings. My apologies for being a little late this evening. Yeah, well, I was just talking about Harry Reid and his life and then his passing and then that funeral service at which tragically and shockingly was protested. Uh, give any thoughts you have on that. I'm just always so disappointed when people find when when people protest at funerals or memorial services. It seems so thoughtless and unkind. Um, he was a he was a great man. Whether you agree with him or not, we can always do well leaving a family and friends at, at peace during such a you know important uh, moment. Uh, it's just really too bad. Yes. Um, I'll tell you this. If somebody called me up and the, the politician that I dislike the most, if somebody said, hey, you want to go, you know, across the street, it was, you know, I'm really close. It's super convenient. Do you want to go protest their funeral? I'd say absolutely not. Uh, there is no way I would do that and disrespect the family members and friends of that person because you can disagree with people politically, but there is just no call for protesting a funeral. Um, you know, I just thought that was uh, incorrigible. And, and I'm sure that it's the kind of thing that you think that people that might be on the fence about which side they agree with on some policy issues, that that would turn those folks off and it would be a net negative for those people's uh, political agenda that are protesting it. Oh, I don't know people I, I don't know if people react that strongly to something like that yeah but I mean I know that there other issues but I mean it, it definitely I can't imagine somebody saying wow they protested Harry Reid's funeral let me sign up with those guys they're great um it definitely wouldn't add people um by any means so therefore you've then just wasted your Saturday afternoon 
um, and, and then shown you have absolutely no class at the same time. Well, well I, um, I, I don't think I don't think people do things like that to gain um, support. It's it's a it's a protest. You know, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I I tend to agree, but I don't think that's why they did it. Why anyone does something like that is to um, bring people into their uh, beliefs. But. Yeah. Well, they don't understand democracy very well, and they really don't understand um, protest very well because, uh, you know, the goal of protest is to get people to agree with you, but you have to have a protest in a noble way uh, that does that. Um, mm, but, before we move on, Catherine, any thoughts on uh, Harry Reid's life? I mean – and his career. Oh, I mean, he he was he was an amazing um, leader and um, really effective um, uh, political um, player, and uh, I, I had a lot of respect for him. I might not have always agreed with the way he did things, but I uh, I, I had a lot of respect for him and. Uh, I think he he had a great life and uh, had a lot to be proud of, and I'm, I hope his family uh, recognizes that family and friends. Yes, yeah, just more people so far in the last few weeks that have uh, passed away sadly. Um, yes, well, let's kind of switch over to another topic before Kyle calls in to talk about his book, and um, that would be um, COVID nineteen. Um, you know. When the vaccine, vaccines came out and the booster shots, um, it, it just looked like we were going to kind of move past it a little more and a little more. And then, of course, now we have apparently treatments that if someone does get it, um, these pills that they've been testing, um, what they found out so far seems promising. Um, but this Omicron that spreads so fast seems to be putting us kind of backward again to where we may face some shutdown. People are, you know, attending church, going to restaurants, going to other social outings, far less than they were just a few months ago. Um, hospital numbers are going back up, which, you know, if you are vaccinated, the early you know, information I've heard is it's really not that bad of symptoms where you would need the hospital. But a lot of people still aren't, and that's where the numbers are coming from. Um, how disheartening is this to you, Catherine, that we're now in the um, seeming, you know, almost third year of this in America? Well, you know, it's, it's – um, I don't know if disheartening is the right word. It's scary to me. Uh, I think we're going to probably – I hate to say it, but I think we're going to be living with this for a long time. I think we are probably going to be um, – going to have to get used to wearing masks in public. Uh, I think we're going to probably see a lot more uh, people working from home, working remotely um, as a standard more than as an exception. Uh, I think, you know, the sort of open office uh, environment is going to be uh, rare, you know, especially like the open uh, cubicles and stuff like that. Um, it's very disappointing to me that people are not um, taking it, don't seem to be taking a lot of it seriously. 
and are continuing to um, not get vaccinated, not get boosted, not take any of the other uh, precautions seriously. I still see people in the grocery store or out in public without masks. And, um, but I do think it's going to be, it's going to just become sort of a standard, some of these behaviors. Maybe maybe seasonal kind of in the winter. We'll we'll talk more about this in just a little bit, but I want to welcome onto the show for several times now um, from the uh, Crystal Ball and the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, Kyle Kondik. Welcome, Kyle. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes. Well, we were real excited to get you back on the show. Always great when you are on, but you have just uh, released a new book called The Long, uh, the Long Red Thread about U.S. House elections. Um, just kind of give us a synopsis kind of, you know, about this book. Yeah, so it's a history of House elections uh, from 1964 all the way through uh, the most recent election in 2020. And, you know, what it kind of tells tells the story of is, is um, how the House went from being dominated by Democrats, you know, at the, certainly at the start of that time period and through the early 1990s to, you know, a period now where I think that the House is, is, you know, generally pretty competitive on a year-to-year basis, but the Republicans win the majority more often than Democrats do. And so it gets at some of the um, kind of the big picture trends in, in U.S. House elections, the uh, you know political realignment trends all across the country, um, the declining power of incumbency, uh, the sort of rise of uh, straight ticket voting, which I think has broadly benefited Republicans because the you know, the Democrats used to win so many seats in districts that otherwise were kind of conservative and Republican, particularly you know particularly in the South. Um, and, you know, the, just the, the trends over time, I think, have just benefited the Republicans. And, of course, you know, there's going to be a great test for how Republican the House is in, in 2022 because, um, you know, the Democrats have the majority now. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real paper thin uh, majority. And, uh, you know, if, if broad historical trends, uh, you know, repeat themselves, you'd expect the Republicans to win in 2022. Well, you know, we'll see if they uh, we'll see if they do. And. You know, this is a bit of history that might be of interest to, to folks who follow politics. I know you guys do and, and uh, your listeners do. Um, the reason I started in 1964 is that I think you could argue that that's kind of the start of a modern era of U.S. House elections because prior to 64, uh, that was before the Supreme Court issued a series of important rulings on reapportionment. Um, prior to those rulings, uh, congressional districts and state legislative districts didn't really have to have equal population within states. And so uh, by the early 1960s, you had a lot of mal- what's called malapportionment. Um, for instance, in states like Michigan and Texas, uh, some districts in those states had, you know, four times the number of people that, that other districts had. And so the, the, those uh, Supreme Court rulings, uh, you know, Baker v. Carr kind of opened the door to, to, to ju- the, the court weighing in on this. And then um, Reynolds v. Sims and Westbury v. Sanders created this, uh, you know, the sort of the principle of one person, one vote and applied it to congressional and state legislative districting. And so after 64, you see all the states have to um, start redrawing their districts to uh, account for, uh, you know, this equal population mandate. And so that's why I sort of started there, because um, the districting scheme sort of got standardized uh, in, in that in that time frame. Um, but it also catches the Democrats at a 
at a pretty high point. They had, a, they had just a little under 300 seats in 1964. That, of course, was the Lyndon Johnson wave election. And it sort of tracks, you know, how that majority kind of dwindled and dwindled and then finally went away in 94. And uh, now we've had this period where, you know, Democrats do win majorities uh, here and there, but the Republicans tend to win more over the last three decades or so. Yes. Well, you anticipated another question I would have had would have been, you know, why 64, but it makes total sense once you explain it. Um, well, your motivation for writing this book, I mean, just interested in House elections or you, there wasn't a study in this area. What motivated you? Uh, so I've been doing um, kind of detailed work on U.S. House elections for the past decade, ever since I started at the Center for Politics at uh, UVA in 2011. Um, and so I'm sort of among the, the other things I do at the center. I'm kind of our point person for rating the U.S. House races. Um, and uh, so I've just you know developed an interest in House races, and I wanted to um, you know kind of learn more about the, the history and, and some of the legal stuff and, and you know other things that go into uh, U.S. House elections. And uh, I also did this project. I initially wrote it as part of my uh, master's thesis at uh, uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, which uh, it, I, I, there's a, they have a, uh, a bunch of their programs, I and mean, they're based in Baltimore, but a bunch of their programs are here in Washington, where I live. Um, and so I did, did most of the work online, but, but did some stuff in person uh, uh, at their uh, at their campus here in here in Washington. But um, as part of that project at Johns Hopkins, you do a uh, you, you essentially do kind of three three courses on your thesis, and um, you kind of write a thesis in three parts. And so the way I did it at Johns Hopkins was I did uh, uh, you know, three different time periods of House elections. It did 64 to 74, which ended up being uh, chapter one in the book, 76 to 94, which is chapter two of the book, and then uh, and then in the 96 to, to now, which is the, the third part of the third chapter of the book. And then, uh, you know, after I did the master's thesis in 2019, I kind of expanded the book, updated it for 2020, and then the book came out, um, uh, you know, late late 2021. Um, so it's you know it's pretty pretty fresh and pretty updated, and uh, at least until you know, <laughs> at least until the next election, and of course, um, you know, the redistricting process is, is ongoing as we speak and uh, across the country. Most definitely. Well, I have another question for you before I let Catherine ask a few questions as well, and based on your breaks and years that maybe um, make a lot of sense. Um, of the, which cycle between 64 and now would you say was the most consequential in shaping kind of like congressional election history, which is the one to really point to if you had to point to that one cycle? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would probably say either 92 or 94, and I guess maybe you take them together, um, just because that's sort of the hinge point where, you, you know, the, the, of course, the Republicans finally break through and, and, you know, win the majority in 94. But the reason I don't just say 94 is that in some ways um, – 92 helped set up 94 because, uh, you know, in, in, in the early 90s, the Democrats on paper still had a lot of redistricting power. You know, back then, um, you know, Democrats were much likelier to hold state legislative majorities, particularly in the South, but, but in other parts of the country, too. Uh, and but but the um, for a lot of different reasons, including changes to the Voting Rights Act it made in the 80s and some, some judicial decisions. 
the then George H.W. Bush Justice Department in 92 um, decided to really intervene heavily um, with Democratic-controlled states in the South in, in order to, to, to force the drawing of more um, majority-minority districts, which uh, they, had, they had the effect of – you know that you had a Republican White House essentially intervening to create more districts that would elect minority members and who were almost always Democrats. Um, but also, they knew that at that time that the South had been Democratic strength in the South had been eroding, and that by creating more majority minority districts, you then would re- make the other surrounding districts likely to elect Republicans. And so you had um, the creation of these districts, particularly across the South. And it, it has this sort of cascading effect that it does it does um, hurt the Democrats' position and sort of helps set the, the Republicans up for um, for for their you know for their big breakthrough in 1994. Um, 94 was also the first time that the Republicans had won a majority in of the seats, a small majority of the seats in a. Um, uh, in a region of the country I call the Greater South, it's the 11 states of the old Confederacy, plus uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Oklahoma, so those 14 states. And, you know, once the Republicans officially kind of broke through in the South, they've only continued to build on their uh, advantage in the South. And so now um, the Republicans hold almost 70 percent of the seats in the Greater South, and that's helped them either w- keep it, you know, win majorities over the past couple decades or um, it's helped them, you know, stay within within reach of the Democrats as, as they are uh, um, as, as they are right now. But uh, that that period right there, I think, is the most the most interesting and consequential. Yes, sir. Um, and I would think, you know, 94 and then 92 would be up there as well. Um, well, I'm going to pass this over to Catherine Smith and she may come back to me with some more questions. Catherine. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, sure. David, David did a perfect segue into my uh, my my first question, which is um, about redistricting and uh, the dominance of um, Republicans in the South, and how important it's been for them in the state legislatures. How important their um, dominance in the South has. Um, had the impact on redistricting, which then, of course, gives them the power in the um, in the House. So, how do you think that's been a um, an important or influential change? And oh, absolutely! Been, yeah, and it's sorry. It's, we always say that they've been planning this all along. You know, they started the Republicans started out running for you know com- county commission and school board and then, you know, slowly built their power coming into the state legislatures. So I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead and, and answer my question. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, one of the problems that the Republicans persistently had uh, in the, kind of the early part of my book in, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s is that, you know, while Republicans had really broken through at the presidential level uh, in, in many, many parts of the South uh, throughout the 60s and the 70s, um, they didn't really have any strength in, you know, in, at kind of the lo- lower levels of election you know, down the ballot. They didn't have, you know, did, one of the things that helped Democrats is just that there may have been seats that were vulnerable on paper, but the Republicans could never, um, or they they didn't didn't 
they weren't able to produce enough credible candidates, you know, people who had won elected office in the past, in part because the kind of political establishments in a lot of those southern states were essentially all Democrats. Um, now, a lot of those Democrats were, were pretty conservative and um, would be Republicans now. And in fact, some of them are Republicans now that they're still around. Right. Um, you know, I think about like uh, like Richard Shelby, who's who's retiring uh, this this year. But, you know, he got elected as a Democratic senator in uh, in 86 and then. Um, he, uh, he, he changed to the Republicans in, you know, 94. Um, but you, you know, you see a lot of that. I mean, a lot of the older Southern Republican, um, office holders, many of them were, were, you know, were Democrats much earlier in their, uh, in their lives. So yeah, there wasn't much of a, wasn't much of a bench. And also, you know, they were on the wrong end of, you know, democratic gerrymandering, um, back then in the South. Um, but you know, what, what happened is that this, political realignment, you know, it kind of slowly impacted the South. And, and, you know, one of the other things that happens in the early 90s is that based on um, polling data, that's the first time that a plurality of, um, uh, of, of whites in the South started to identify as Republicans, self-identify as Republicans. And that comes at the same time as um, this redistricting that is, you know, weakening the, the, the districts of, um, you know, white, moderate, conservative Democrats, strengthening Republicans. And so they're finally able to capitalize on this political change that's going on. But, you know, one of the things that I think it was just sort of confounding the Republicans in the 70s and 80s is like, hey, you know, we're winning presidential elections all the time. The South is voting, you know, is voting for our presidential candidates, you know, outside of uh, Jimmy Carter, really, in 76, um, who, of course, was a, you know, was a Southern candidate himself. Um, but, you know, why can't we win below the ballot, you know, down the ballot? And so you have a lot of important people in the history of the Republican Party, uh, like Newt Gingrich is one of them, who's arguing throughout the 80s that, um, hey, we need to be more confrontational with the Democrats. We need to, um, uh, you know, heighten, you know, uh, uh, really, really put, emphasize the differences between the two parties. And we need to stop, prevent, you know, tell voters or, or convince voters to, to stop splitting their tickets and voting Republican for president, Democratic down ballot. And it, it happened. And, you know, now in, you know, by 2020, you only had 16 districts out of 435 that voted for one party for president, and the other party for, for house, you know, back in the seventies, like in the 76 election, it was around 30% of all the seats. So there was a lot more, a lot more ticket splitting going on. Um, a lot of the sort of feeling in political science at that time was that, um, you know, voters valued incumbency, voters valued kind of the, the services that uh, um, that their individual members, uh, you know, provided, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. Whereas now, um, I think we look at uh, the voting patterns as being more what the, um, Tom Davis, the former Republican congressman, he always calls it, you know, parliamentary style voting, meaning that you're, you're kind of voting, voting much more for the, for the party than the person, which I think is the world we're in now. Absolutely, it's and it's um, it's kind of shocking sometimes when you start start looking at some of these candidates that get elected. Um, do you think that um, in some states have these uh, nonpartisan redistricting commissions? Um, do you think that helps address any of this? Um, and and how? How, what do you think about redistricting and how it's currently, um, how the current process in most places works? Do you think it's fair? Um, look, I think that that 
you know, in, in, in a perfect world, which of course we don't live in, um, there would be, you know, there, there seems to be fairer ways of doing it than just, hey, if one party has the legislature and the governorship, therefore they could draw the map the way that they want. Of course, there are certain legal constraints having to do with, uh, you know, majority minority districts and, and other things. But, you know, fundamentally in states like, uh, you know, Texas and North Carolina and in, in Florida, you know, the Republicans are in control there and they generally have, have freedom to draw the maps. Um, now, there's some, you know, the state courts sometimes intervene. Um, there's sometimes, you know, other limitations. Um, but, you know, Democrats also have uh, not as much gerrymandering power, but they do have it. And like Illinois, I guess, is probably the best example. They, they might gerrymander New York. Um, we're sort of waiting to see on that. Um, you know, again, I, I think that, that there probably is a fairer way to do it than, than that sort of method where it's just kind of, you know, the, the, the majority party kind of just rules the roost and that's that's that. You know, it doesn't seem, you know, it's a little, um, um, I think it's it's a little distasteful, particularly if you're the minority party in a given state. Um, you know, then it's a question of, well, how should it be done? And, you know, there have been different um, commissions set up. It seems like the ones that have you know, that, that don't allow lawmakers to participate, maybe maybe work a little <laughs> bit better. Uh, you know, Virginia created a, a commission, you know, the voters approved it in 2020 that had 16 members, eight citizens, eight legislators. And so there's no tiebreaker and it's an, you know, it's an even number of people from both parties. And, uh, you know, it just didn't work. I mean, they deadlocked and didn't create maps. And then uh, the, the state Supreme Court had to step in and, and they appointed two, uh, two political scientists from lists submitted by the two parties and um, they drew the maps. And I, I think they did a fine job on it, but that's not the way the process was designed to work. It was designed so this commission would draw. You know, on the other hand, you've got to say like Michigan where I think that, you know, that there's a new commission there and I think they did a decent job in, um, you know, creating a, a fair number of legitimately competitive districts and not really advantaging um, either side. So I do think there's, you know, there's, there is um, merit in, in commission systems that I think they're, they're fairer than um, you know, the alternative. Um, it's just that I think we're still collectively as a country, you know, through the, you know, the so-called laboratories of democracy in the states, figuring out which commissions uh, work well and which ones don't. To me, in this cycle, Michigan's an example of a commission that I think worked pretty well. Virginia's an example of one. You know, they're both they're both states that were trying this out for the first time um, after uh, after the creation of these commissions uh, uh, last decade. Um, you know, Virginia's one that maybe didn't work so well. Michigan's, I think, worked relatively well. But, you know, the other thing about redistricting is just that, like, Different people can have different different reasonable opinions about what's good and what's bad. I mean, obviously they're they're partisan considerations, but also you know some people might say, hey, we want to we want to maximize the number of districts that um, that minority candidates can win. We want someone else might say, hey, we should. Um, we should make sure we split as few municipal and county lines as possible. Others might say, hey, let's try to maximize the number of competitive seats. And none of those people are necessarily wrong or right about their opinions. It's just that, you know, different people have different different views of this. And so it, it ends up being a situation where it's, it's really hard to make everyone happy, um, you know, in, in, in the redistricting process. Uh, it's just that, again, I feel like <laughs> there are fairer ways to do it than just, you know, majority party draws the lines and that's it. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you and every state is different too. You know, do you, do you um, split up uh, metropolitan areas? If you don't have any metropolitan areas, do you, you know, do it strictly by geography. I mean, I, there are a lot of questions and a lot of 
challenges to the process, but uh, the current yeah, and, system you know, seems... and, and I was just going to say, and like you could you could draw a map based on what you think is right, and I could draw a map based on what I'm saying I think is right, and they both could look a lot different, and neither of us would necessarily be wrong. You know, there's you know, it's, it's right no, exactly. Um, that's the that's the tricky thing about it, yeah. And that's why it seems like having you know a variety of um, sort of a diverse group of people, you know, like some citizens, some lawmakers, and a couple of political scientists. Seems like it might be a good approach, but what looks good in um, theory doesn't always work in uh, in actuality. So, um, well, yeah, absolutely right. You know, I mean, that what what you described in Virginia sounds good, but it it didn't work. So it's right. sort of back to the drawing board. Um, do you see any um, looking at what you've examined over the last since 1964 up to now? Do you, what do you think? Do you see any um, trends or? Um, or changes that you think might happen going forward? Are you, uh, I mean, do you think this is good, this is sort of a where we are and we're, it's not going to change? Or do you think that um, this rise in, um, for instance, in Georgia, this rise in uh, voter registration and engagement, do you think that could have an impact, in, not just in Georgia, but sort of across the country? Yeah, I mean, we are in a seems like a, a pretty a high a time of pretty high participation. I mean, we had basically a record, you know, modern record turnout in the 18 midterm, and then a, then a modern record turnout in the 2020 presidential. You know, I don't think 2022 is going to set those kinds of records, but I, I would expect to see robust turnout. You know, I don't I don't know if that necessarily benefits one side or the other. I think there's I think we could sort of put to bed the notion that Democrats win if turnout is high. I mean, that might be true in in you know, certain states, I mean, Georgia might be the, the case, although, frankly, I would have said that Virginia is a state where high turnout would benefit Democrats, and we just had our really high turnout in the gubernatorial race, and Republicans did well, in part because I just think that their core voters showed up at a – you know, at a little at a little higher clip than the than the Democratic uh, core voters did, and they and they got some they got some swing support um, as well. Um, I'd say you know one one trend that has been increasing over time, or one one sort of development that's been increasing over time is is the rise of these commissions for redistricting. You know, you had more this cycle than you've had in the past. Um, there are I think there are ten states that use a commission system. You know, different people also can define these systems in different ways. But uh, many of the western states uh, uh, do, do the commission. Uh, you, you have these you have these commissions. Um, but now we've seen you know um, you know them them emerge in like Virginia and Michigan too. Um, so I suspect that by the time we get to 2030, we probably will have more states with commission systems, which you know I think is good. Again. Different people have different opinions about which, what kind of commission is good and what kind isn't. But, um, you know, I think broadly speaking, it's probably a fair way to do it if you can sort of figure out, you know, best practices on how to design these commissions. But, um, uh, it, you know, it seems like that, that seems to be the trend. And it also seems like voters maybe are a little bit, I'd say particularly Democrats, because they've been on the wrong side of gerrymandering recently, um, are sort of keyed in on, on – gerrymandering is a problem and in states where you know uh there can be you know voter initiatives to put things on the ballot 
um, uh, that's uh, you know I think I think you're going to see uh, uh, these kinds of uh, ballot issues you know it, emerge in places more and come up with these more uh, or with these you know less partisan or independent you know bipartisan. Uh, uh, in redistricting systems, you know, I think that has been a, a change that we've seen over the course of the last several decades. Well, great. Thanks. Thank you very much. It's very informative and very helpful. And I'm going to pass it back to David for some more questions. Thank you. Yeah, I want to kind of follow Thank up you. on the um, the re- independent redistricting commissions. And you mentioned the problems in Virginia, and that was pretty bad. But the state of Ohio, and I know you you've written extensively on Ohio politics as well, um, they had a commission that was passed by the voters through a referendum, and they couldn't come to a conclusion, and they just threw the whole thing out and just really ignored the voters' wishes of that referendum. It, it seems like almost there, there would be some kind of legal problem there to just disregard the wishes of the voters, although we've seen that with some other initiatives, not redistricting in other states. But uh, tell us what you can about what happened to Ohio, and if there will be a way between, before uh, 2030 to make it right and follow the voters' wishes? Yeah, so um, both the drawing of the state legislative lines and the congressional lines, there was changed at various points in the last decade. Um, and kind of what happened was is that there was, you know, both parties got behind these reform efforts and you know, there were some people, I think, who, who sort of rightly thought at the time that the, the reform was, wasn't strong enough effectively in that there were ways for the majority party, in this case the Republicans, to sort of get around it. And so that's what we saw is that basically the Republicans gerrymandered um, the state house and Senate and also the congressional districts. And it, w- the way the system works is that essentially, you know, the, the maps are generally passed every 10 years. Now, there's no federal prohibition on frequent redistricting, but some states end up forbidding it. So, you know, a famous example, just as a little sidetrack here, you know, famous example is that in Texas in the 2000s, um, there was a, you know, congressional map that was uh, kind of a, a continuation of a, of a Democrat gerrymander from the 90s because there was divided government when the map was drawn. Republicans won everything in 2002, and then they decided to draw a new congressional map that was a gerrymander for themselves. And so they did that in advance of 2004, and, and that was allowed to stand, basically allowed to stand. There were there was a little nibbling at the edges, but there was no prohibition, you know, federal prohibition on them, them doing that. But anyway, so in the Ohio system, basically you need – you need the minority party to buy in in order to pass 10-year maps for the whole decade. If the minority party doesn't vote for something, the majority party can essentially force through maps that are only in place for, 2000, for, for the next two elections. So in this case, it would be 20, 2020 and 2024. Um, and so that's what happened. And then the backstop of the process is that the Ohio Supreme Court um, is, you know, can, can be the arbiter as to whether the um, – there are certain laws, there are certain uh, um, standards set out in the Constitution, in the, in the state Constitution now about uh, uh, about the, what, what the districts are supposed to be like, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so the Ohio Supreme Court is going to weigh in sometime here real soon, and you know, they may force the Republicans to um, take the edge off their gerrymander a little bit. But the way that the congressional map is currently drawn. I think in the context of 2022, you'd expect the Republicans to be pretty well positioned to win 13 of the 15 seats, um, which is up from 12-4 that Ohio lost the seat in the, in the census. Um, but 
the, the map elected 12 Republicans and four Democrats throughout the 2010s. It was a um, pretty effective uh, Republican gerrymander um, for that cycle. But um, Republicans could get an even bigger edge in Ohio if the map is allowed to stand. Um, but there are some thoughts that, that maybe it won't be it won't be allowed to stand. But um, I do think that um, there are definitely reformers in Ohio who feel like, you know, they uh, they got sold a bill of goods on this particular proposal and that they'd like to create something stronger in the future. And I think you'd see that because Ohio is a state where it's not very hard to get, um, you know, relatively speaking, it's not very hard to get um, an issue on the statewide ballot. So um, it may be that kind of, um, um, you know, at basically, you know, Democrats and their allies might try to get a new system on, on, in place for the um, for 2030, particularly because it, it seems as though if the Ohio Supreme Court weighs in against the maps, it'd probably be a 4-3 decision with the three Democrats on the court and the Republican chief justice weighing in, you know, in enforcing a change to the maps. But uh, the chief justice is reti- is retiring at the end of this year, um, and presumably, if a Republican wins that seat, the court probably will be less friendly to enforcing these, um, you know, anti gerrymandering provisions effectively. So, um, even if the court ends up being backstop this time, it may not be a backstop in in the future. You know, that's a um, that's something we talk about in Florida too. Um, Florida has a, you know kind of an anti gerrymandering. Uh, or anti-gerrymandering provisions written into its state constitution, but there's some question as to whether this this particular court will actually enforce them, although it seems like as the draft districting maps have come out, they're not as aggressive Republican gerrymanders as they maybe could be, and that might speak to the Republicans kind of preemptively trimming their sails to make sure that they don't lose lawsuits. Yes. Well, I mean, Ohio's going to be a state to watch it. And you mentioned just two Democratic seats. I know there's three pretty sizable um, metropolitan areas, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus. Which one of those three cities is not going to have a Democratic district projected? Well, based on the map now, it would be Cincinnati. And the way, and that's, that's actually really one of the focuses of the lawsuit is that the new, the, the new guidelines for redistricting in Ohio, um, basically the only city you can split of big cities is Columbus. And that's because Columbus is, is so big. It, it's too big for a single congressional district, but Cleveland and Cincinnati both have to be within a single district. But the way the, the Republicans drew the Cincinnati district is that they, they carved out a lot of Hamilton County, which is, you know, basically a blue county now. It, it used to be really Republican, but over the course of the last few decades, it's become a Democratic county. They cut out some of Hamilton County and they connected Cincinnati to Warren County, which is a big red exurban county northeast of Cincinnati. Um, and, you know, the the the, um, the new guidelines for the districting, they really kind of frown upon um, unnecessarily splitting um, you know, splitting counties and, and you know, and, and, and breaking up areas. And, and so, um, you know, I think that the people who don't like the map could sort of point to Cincinnati and say, hey, Hamilton County is um, a little bit, uh, it, it has a little bit more than the population of an ideal sized congressional district, but why shouldn't Hamilton County be effectively whole within you know, one congressional district and change. Instead, the since you know Hamilton County is, is split up a few different ways, which is designed to help Republicans. Uh, and yeah, there's a safe, safe seat in Cleveland and, a, and for Democrats, and a safe seat in uh, in Columbus. And there are a couple other seats that are competitive on paper. 
But again, in the context of 2022 and 2024, which remember, this map would go away after 2024 based on the new rules in Ohio, I think Republicans can look at it and say, hey, there are a few competitive seats, but in the context of a 22 or 24 election, we should be able to win these seats. And look, if we don't, then we get to draw new maps in in uh, you know in, in advance of 2026 anyway. And so um, one of the kind of pernicious effects of the Ohio redistricting, you know, so-called reforms is that it might actually prompt more gerrymandering because, uh, uh, and, and, and more gerrymandering more often because um, the the Republicans who probably will still be in control at that point um, can go back and, and tweak the lines in in, in uh, 2025 when in most states the practice is not to do that or there may actually be some some actual state level prohibition against uh, changing the lines more than once in a decade. Yes. Well, Kyle, um, before you go, I want you to tell our listeners the best way to buy the book. If they've heard about the long red thread and they want to purchase it, um, give us some options. Uh, you know, if you, uh, you know, obviously the, you know, big book, big book sellers online, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, they've got it. Um, if you're looking for a signed copy, my, my signature looks horrible, but I mean, it is a signature. <laughs> uh, you can uh, buy it from the book loft in Columbus. Uh, I, I signed a bunch for them uh, a couple of months ago. So, so they have, they have some signed ones in stock. Um, and uh, also, uh, uh, there's uh, you could buy it directly from uh, um, from my publisher, Ohio University Press. There's a uh, landing page for the Long Red Thread. If you go to my uh, Twitter handle at kcondic, um, you'll see some information uh, in my pinned tweet about uh, about the book. Um, so uh, you know, it's I think that again for people who are really interested in this stuff. Um, I think you'll enjoy the house history, and also it it kind of kind of tells the history more broadly of you know how the how the nation has kind of realigned politically over the course of the last several decades. Um, and you know, again, the South is really a, a huge part of that story. Yeah, sounds like a fascinating book, and I want to thank you for coming on the show tonight and joining us. And hopefully, we can get you sometime back sometime in the future to discuss the the lay of the land for 2022, if you will. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Have a good night. Bye-bye. You too. You too. All right. Kyle Kondik of Larry Sabados. Um, he's the managing editor of the Crystal Ball at the Virginia Center for Politics. Um, well, Catherine, we were talking about COVID, and, you know, obviously there's a medical side of it that's the most important, but the political side um, is, I guess, what, you know, given our show, we need to talk a little bit about, too. And, um, have you heard much about how Gerald pa- uh, Jared Paulus, Democratic governor from uh, Colorado, is approaching you know the pandemic and protocols, if you will? No, I haven't really heard it much about that. Why don't you tell, the, yeah. tell me and our listeners about that? Okay, his theory, and I'm kind of just giving a rough summation of it, is you know everybody that wants to get vaccinated can be vaccinated, and that you know mitigates the risk substantially i mean better than anything else and so many people have put their lives on hold in so many ways for so long that he doesn't foresee going back to a lot of the 20 uh 20 procedures of the spring and the summer and i guess all the way through into the fall um you know because of the vaccines and of course he knows he's got people in his state that aren't vaccinated but they've made that you know really risky and destructive choice and so 
that's how he wants to handle it. And some people are saying that that's how more Democrats um, ought to look at it as well, um, because people have, you know, you know, put their lives on hold for so long. And when this all started, if you're like, well, for a few months or, mo- you know, a large part of a year, now it's getting into the third year. Um, how much of your life do you want to sacrifice? It does become a bit of a dilemma. I mean, if you think about school children that are at critical ages, I mean, they could have missed parts of three years of reading instruction. Um, what's your thoughts on what I've described to you about the Colorado approach, if you will? I, I'm sorry. I, I'm not sure I really understand. So he's saying we shouldn't, you know, shut schools down. We shouldn't. Uh, yeah, it, not, as many, not as many lockdown procedures and whatnot. Um, that, that's kind of it's basically people now that we have vaccines. And, and, you know, in Colorado, he was governor through a lot of this. He did do much more like a Democratic state and some Republican governors. I mean, Ohio, uh, Massachusetts, Maryland, um, he, he did take the tack more like them. I mean, it wasn't a Florida model by any means. But now that people have vaccines as an option, um, we let people um, that have been vaccinated in particular have much more freedom. Well, I, I mean, I think that makes some sense, but um, – there's still there are people who, for whatever reason, whether it's because of their age or um, some kind of complications with their health, can't get the vaccinations. Um, n- not because they don't want to, but because they can't. Or even with the vaccination and booster and protection, are at higher risk because they're immunocompromised or because of their age. So, um, I, I mean, I understand the idea of not um, wanting to mandate vaccinations, but on the other hand, I also, in my 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 uh, you know my my freedom, the freedom side of me. <laughs> wants people to do what they want with what they choose with their bodies and with their, you know, their health. But the side of me that wants to live in a safe and, and, and um, healthy environment wants everybody to get a vaccination. So I think it's a really tough call. Um, I do think that we've all managed to adjust Aside from school, I think a lot of people have managed to adjust to some of these limitations. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough call. I'm glad I'm not a governor. I'm glad I don't have to make these kind of choices. And I, would, I guess I would want to see a little more detail about what, um, what he's calling for. But if, if he thinks that it's going to – if the the environment is still going to be relatively safe, then I guess you have to trust him to make those kind of decisions. Yeah. And I think there are other people that, that, you know, handled the pandemic, um, you know, very responsibly before vaccines that are now seeing the vaccines. And I've seen a lot of discussion, um, 
you know, like that. And so it's going to be an interesting debate because, you know, if it continues to go on for year after year after year, if you can, you know, put on a mask at times and still do everything you want to do, to me, that's not that big a deal. But if it means that you can't do things like, let's say a band couldn't go on concert or you know, couldn't go on tour for five years or something like that, um, you know, we would have high school players that this could affect the third season of their sport in a row and you only get four seasons in high school. Um, and so it just, um, and, and of course, like I said, if you had a first grader in 2020 and now 2021 got affected, now 2021, 22 gets affected. That's three years of, you know, it's like critical reading instruction. And so um, at some point, it seems like you have to find ways to get back to normal, not normal just for normal sake, because we want to throw off the chains of the oppressor, you know, like the people that wanted to go eat at Fuddruckers while the pandemic was still raging up in Michigan. But I mean, people that have been like, this is now three years, not three weeks. Um, I, I do think it's a very different um, argument than we would have had, say, back um, a little under two years ago. Well, we've got just a, probably another minute or two, but such a big discussion uh, talking about how, um, you know, Democrats could handle policy agenda between now and um, 2022's election. I don't know that we could give that a lot of, you know, do that a lot of justice. Um, uh, do you, Catherine? Probably not, not in, not in the short time that we have. And I also think we always benefit from Tim's input on these kind of issues, yeah, too. Yeah, I do, too. Uh, I, I can kind of set the table um, for next week, though. Um, I, I do know that um, we have Ron Brune, uh, who lives in Ohio, that, that really studies elections all across the country, including Georgia. But he's going to come in, and we can get even deeper into Ohio, which is a fascinating state, along others. And he's going to be our guest um, for the January 16th show. Also, and we probably can make a quick comment on this, but go deeper. Um, there were some moves made down ballot in Georgia today. Um, yes. Charlie Bailey, who was going to run for attorney general again, and Jen Jordan, who was another top candidate, was going to run for attorney general. Only, only one can win. And I think I know myself. I don't know that Charlie Bailey was the candidate I was waiting for, but I know that if I looked at the ticket from governor on down, it seemed like lieutenant governor was missing something that the others had. And um, he's decided to run for lieutenant governor to strengthen that up. And apparently he was encouraged by a lot of folks. Um, your thoughts on quickly on Charlie Bailey switching to that race? Um, well, you know, there, there were a couple of, of other candidates that had announced and were actively running Renita Shannon and Eric Allen, I think were both running. Um, But, you know, Charlie, Charlie Bailey is, uh, I think a strong candidate. He got a lot of support out of the gate um, from, I think, Congressman Hank Johnson, uh, a couple other people, you know, already uh, endorsed for what that's worth. And, um, I do think they were both good candidates for AG. So I was um, kind of pleased to see um, that, that, that split. Uh, Jen Jordan is um, certainly a qualified and 
capable candidate for AG. And uh, with Charlie Bailey's, you know, he's got a lot of political experience. I'm sure he'd be well-suited as lieutenant governor. So uh, I think I, 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 at the risk of offending candidates that are running, I think it's probably a good move. Yeah, I don't know, and I am curious, and I think that's something we can all be looking out for to see if, because it said Democratic, you know, officials like people that were higher up in the the, the party food chain um, had encouraged this change. Now, was that a, a more of a field clearing for Jen Jordan? And thank you for correcting uh, pronunciation of her last name. I never know. When you, the name spelled the same, when you call it Jordan and when you call it Jordan, I don't know what makes. Yeah, the distinction. I don't. I don't know. I, <laughs> I've just been corrected about that a number of times, so yeah. that's why I know. I mean, that, yeah, and that's fine. I mean, it's how that family pronounces it, and it's just, it's like, okay, Michael Jordan kind of get doesn't he get to decide since that's the most famous Jordan there is. <laughs> um, but but anyway, well, the information I, I have is that former Governor Roy Barnes. Uh, Representative Lucy McBath and Hank Johnson all um, stepped forward to endorse him. Yeah, and I'm wondering if it was more of a field-clearing move for her or was it to get a stronger candidate lieutenant governor? And I'm curious to see if anybody's going to you know, hear through the rumor mill if Stacey Abrams was involved, whereas they don't run as a ticket for governor and lieutenant governor in Georgia. You, know, you don't pick your running mate. It would seem that she would kind of want to balance that out a bit, and I wonder if she was involved, and that's something we'll just have to kind of be on the lookout because I haven't heard any information yet, but we'll have at least a week to do some research, and we still may come up with nothing because there may be nothing. Um, And then one more um, piece of news I heard, and this may not have been today, but I read it today, so it's new to me, was um, longtime state representative from Albany, uh, Winifred Dukes, uh, Winfred Dukes, he is going to run for agriculture commissioner. Had you heard about that? Decision? Oh, that's an, I had not heard about that. That's an interesting turn of events. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, um, I don't know that you're going to, it's going to be hard to find somebody with more experience in the state house, um, unless Calvin Smirey decided to run, um, or Nan Orock <laughs> decided to run, then, um, than Winfred Dukes because he has been down there for quite some time. But we'll probably discuss those with more of a possible buy-sell hold next week. Um, but until then, it's been the Cuddly Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity?